we tell each other stories to pass the time and to find some meaning and purpose in our place in the universe. But it's all lies. All useless lies. Everyone should have dreams and aspirations. Without them, what is the point of going through the day-to-day -day drudgery? They give one purpose and, dare I say, hope. And a life without purpose and hope is truly not worth living. I have an aspiration, a dream an ambition. Would you like to hear it? I have decided that what I want, more than anything in the whole wide world, is to become an alcoholic and an opium addict. Yes, I wish to pass my useless days in a state of inebriated bliss. And in between the sweet annihilation, when, when my senses are devastated by drug and alcohol abuse, when my thoughts have been reduced to incoherent blurs, imagine that, my torturous overthinking, just an incoherent blur. Oh, the very idea fills me with the closest thing to pleasure I'm capable of feeling. But in between these states of delirium, when my synapses are drowned, my brain cells dying, my thoughts hammered into submission. In between that decadent bliss, I shall have complete and utter purpose. The purpose being to find more opium and alcohol. Yes, all my problems reduced to a single clear purpose. How to get more drugs and alcohol. Gone are the piles of concerns that plague daily life. Gone are higher thought processes that fill one's head with the menagerie of complications. There is then only one issue, how to feed my addiction. And then there is being obliterated in a sea of incoherence. Then more clear purpose. Ah, the bliss. This is the best ambition I can dream of. Of course, I can never actually hope to achieve even this. The most wretched and lowly of pathetic aspirations. Even patheticness is over my head. I cannot become inebriated. I could throw myself into a vat of grain alcohol and while my putrid body would rot, 
I myself would be stone-cold sober. Even the worst ambitions are beyond my grasp. My only remaining hope is that one day I will watch this city burn. And as it burns, when the flames are at their highest, I will leap into them, and the flames will devour this horrid form, and my spirit will then know utter nothingness. Here's more of our useless story. William reached Seddington, although the trip was not smooth, showed up at the printmaker's shop with the letter from Mademoiselle Chantirolaine, and soon after found himself apprenticed to the middle-aged printmaker. The man had a grumpy exterior, but was actually quite kind beneath his performance of exasperated cynicism. Even so, William was expected to perform his duties diligently and learn the trade with focused discipline. It was fortunate his mother had taught him to read. Reading was rare in both rural areas and the lower classes. William's reading skills were not so smooth due to lack of practice since his mother's death, and it was initially a bit of a problem. However, William showed himself disciplined and serious in his attempts to learn the trade and become more literate, and within a few months he had won the trust and endearment of his benefactor, whoever after not only relied on William, but stood by him loyally. Thus did several years pass. William's newfound love of literacy and access to all sorts of tracts, pamphlets, novels, and histories was an immense education and made him well-versed in just about any subject ever discussed about town. He was initially a bit of a social recluse, only hanging about the shop, but the more he read, the more comfortable he became conversing with clients who grew to enjoy his company. Sometimes they'd stop by with friends for coffee and sit around discussing the topics of the day. The printmaker was no fool. When his sister, a bitter woman who lived with him above the shop, complained that he was allowing his apprentice to lollygag and grow lazy, the printmaker just hushed her. He knew that the small social hub his shop was becoming was actually great for business, and it was. It was so good that he bought a fancy coffee grinding station, all by hand of course, and made William set up the corner of the store with a few armchairs, tables, and even sold cigars. As his financial lot improved, so did William's pay, and he made it clear that William was to inherit the business when he retired in about a decade. Until then, more and more responsibility and decision-making power would gradually be handed over to William, little by little, until his ability to run the business was established. The man had no children, his wife having died in childbirth, giving birth to a stillborn daughter, both of whom he still grieved and secretly still wept for when drunk by himself, even all these years later. Thus it was that one day, over cigars and coffee, coffee still being a novelty in the city, two clients leaned over to William, and lowering their voices, 
kindly suggested he might want to apply for membership in the Masonic Lodge three blocks east. They winked as they told him they believed his chances of acceptance were quite good. William was now beginning his twenties. He had no social life outside the shop and was thirsty for social interaction and engagement. He was often asked when he'd be choosing a wife, but not only did he have little opportunity to meet women, he had been well aware for quite some time now that it wasn't the female sex that stirred his loins. He was unaware of how to find others like him. He would eventually learn there was an entire encyclopedia of subtle social and fashion cues happening all around him, but for now, he was simply desperate for a social life, and so he applied to the lodge. He was indeed accepted. He loved it. Absolutely loved it. It wasn't even the fellowship and the fun alcohol-fueled get-togethers that he loved the most, although he did revel in the ability to have in-depth discussions with intelligent men from a range of professions. But even more than this, he loved the rituals. He loved the lore, the Hyrie Mabeth story, the moral lessons, the system of sacred geometry, the little psychological plays, the effects they had upon initiates. It utterly enthralled him, and for the first time in his life, even more than his enjoyment of books and printing, he was in love. He shot up the degrees. His lodge embraced the Scottish rites, so there was a nice feast of knowledge and ritual to go through. However, he did eventually burn through it and was hungry for more. He joined two other types of lodges with two more systems of sacred ritual. It was in the midst of these that another lodge brother suggested to William that he might like to join a brotherhood that practiced more esoteric traditions. And that is how William got involved in ritual magic. He ended up joining five different magical lodges, although he stuck with only three of them. Over the next ten years, he moved from initiate to adept and became renowned for his ritual creations. He would make rites for different lodges across the city, even across the continent. His rites were praised for their intensity and depth. But the more proficient he became the more he tired of the state of the lodge system and began planning his own system, whereby he would create his own lodge with a small, intimate membership of carefully hand-picked initiates who together could explore serious and more refined esotericism. In all his ritual work, William noticed a few things. Ritual work was mostly about psychological and moral insight, some of it, especially magical work, desired to use psychological drama to affect real-world change. This didn't often happen, although most of the time the practitioners loved to delude themselves into believing it did. Some rare times, it actually did, and for a long time, he struggled with where the magic was actually happening. Most of ritual was pomp and filler but you couldn't do away with all the pomp because it was crucial to create psychological immersion. He fiddled with the aspects of ritual work that seemed superfluous and unnecessary, yet time and time again he ran into the belief paradox. The things that worked required a depth of belief and psychological immersion, yet most practitioners with exactly this type of belief and psychological immersion ended up wallowing in self-delusion. It was an impossible nut to crack. 
Then, William went to the theater. He was watching a play that cracked the code for him. When good actors performed skillfully, they believed themselves part of the world they were creating, and thus did the audience. Full commitment was necessary, as was great skill. However, when the performance finished, none of the performers still believed themselves part of the drama. They returned to a non-delusional state. Somewhere in this was the formula. Thus, William chose a group of four adepts, all capable of both immersion and cynicism, drama and reason, world-building and reality-scaping, using a theatrical approach to magic. They worked through a number of rituals, exploring and fine-tuning. They had had a decent night one night, trying to up the intensity of a certain metaphorical drama, and afterwards, all particularly pleased with the psychological effects, decided to go out for a few rounds of ale. William was by now basically running the print shop, although still splitting the profits with the mostly retired old man. William, in turn, had hired a young lad and was teaching him the trade. The four companions had dubbed their group the Promethean Lodge. They were not interested in expanding their numbers, they were interested in ritual exploration. They left their basement workspace that evening jovial and in the mood for fellowship and ale. It wasn't until they had reached the end of the alley when they realized the streets around them were not correct. Some details were correct, but there was no question most buildings were wrong. They were not in the same city as when they arrived. All the buildings were different, although the language was still the same. And this city seemed more religious than theirs. Religious symbols hung on every doorway and window. One would assume there would be panic, but this was not the case. They were indeed confused and unable to quite believe it. But they were also desperately praying that it was true. The implications would be wondrous. Had they teleported? Magically changed location? Gone off to a different magical land? They walked about, observing everything. Walking about for some time, they discovered something even more glorious. There were still pubs, still alcohol, and after showing the bartender their coinage, found their money would still work. So they did what any responsible group of maguses would do. They proceeded to get hammered in a magical land. As they drank, they discussed possibilities and implications. They questioned the bartender at length, explaining it was the first time in the city. They soon discovered a number of strange, perplexing things. The city was also named Seddington, which suggested they hadn't jumped location, but indeed were in a new, magical version of their old land. This version had a queen ruling over it. There were differences in history and even in technological innovation. Some of the other countries in this world were the same, but some were not, and had different names and, it seemed, borders. So many wondrous details to discover. Although it was about them that Percy brought up the question of where they were going to spend the night, as they were quickly becoming drunk enough that this issue needed solving now rather than later. They all put their money on the table and decided they had enough to get a single two-bed room at the modest inn above the pub, where they'd worry about how to return to their own reality tomorrow. They ordered another round of drinks, and the bartender told them to wait. He had to bolt the doors, 
as Blood Hour had arrived. It was the time of night when the vampires came out to hunt. The group exchanged looks. They fell into silence. About 15 minutes later, they heard several screams. The bartender shrugged. Gotta be in by 11, he said. Over the next two hours, a number of screams rang out from across the city, and every so often, shapes rushed by the barred windows. William started to worry about getting back to mind the shop the next day. After asking the bartender more questions, the bartender asked them how they had not heard of the vampire queen who ruled over the land. She had conquered about 75 years previously, kept a tight grip over the surrounding towns, but also held the vampire population at modest numbers. Life was certainly scary, but if you stayed in during the two-hour blood hour and kept your doors and windows bolted, you'd likely survive. Most of the brood were more interested in conquering new territory and usually fed off the borderland areas more than stable interior towns like Settington. The group waited until the blood hour was over, then retired to their room, before paying the bartender and heading up, they all agreed that first thing tomorrow, they'd head back to the space they'd left, repeat the ritual, and go back to their own land. They went upstairs, and eventually all fell into a fitful slumber. Sadly, they would not go home. Most would never see their own land ever again. William would, but it would be so many years later, he would be unrecognizable and have long since stopped being home to him. Who cares about music? It's pointless like everything else. Here's some nevertheless. I walk around the house, drunk. I'm wearing women's slippers. Ha! Man, I must be a sight to behold. But I'm not quite sure. I lost my mirror, and the pizza I ordered offers no reflection. I walk around the house. I think of people who have fouled me and therefore should die. But then I think of all the interesting crafts you can make with toilet paper rolls. Once a year, I get drunk in a darkened house for a week. I get drunk and watch. Eraserhead. As I think we all do sometimes. It's my vacation. Once a year, I have a little black and white drunkathon. No phones, not a single luxury. My horoscope has been suspended. Loud industrial noises. First three days, I just watch. Well, I drink and watch. Racerhead. The third and fourth day, I usually find myself pacing, circling the TV, looking at the glow from behind. A pause for a pizza. I won't eat it. I just order it to prove I'm still in control. 
end of the week, I interact with this majestic little film. Not so much words as gesticulations. I kiss the screen. I rub my buttered belly on the screen, as I think we all do sometimes. I roam around the house, the darkened, drunken house. And sometimes, and this has got to be about an hour before dawn, I put a rose up my bum. You know, the business end sticking out, and I sort of improvise a prayful little dance in my surroundings. La 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 raise your head. If you were there in my house, you could follow a trail of those rose petals, and they would lead to me, curled up, fetal position, quivering, crying, my teeth chattering and eraser head type noises coming from inside me and as you pick me up and wrap me in a blanket my vacation would be complete this behavior might disturb me if eraser head weren't such a fine little film don't you think <laughs> <laughs>